0: We'll start in uh, Philippians chapter 4 today. I was quite uh, tempted to read the whole book together. Now, if you have a, a, a study Bible that's clogged with notes, that might look like it would take an extra long time. It'd probably take us 20 minutes or so, maybe even a little bit less, to read through the whole letter aloud, which of course is exactly what they did in the churches when they received the letters from the apostles. They sat down and they listened to the word of God. And I hope you're at the point in your Christian life where you would see the inherent value of hearing the word of God read aloud. Paul instructed Timothy to give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So maybe next week uh, we might give that a shot. But um, not today. I want you to, though, if you're, uh, if you're there, Philippians 4, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 13 to start this morning. Eddie, you read this already? Let's read it again. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Um, I think that in Eddie's, uh, we have the same version, but I think his is a newer edition. Um, He had something slightly different, which I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was good. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, To be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for gathering us together this morning as the body of Christ. Father, you know the the need of every heart that's here. You know the physical needs. You know, Father, who has sickness and you know the extent of it. Even the sickness in our bodies that may not yet be discovered, you are well aware. You will care for us. Help us to trust in you. Lord, you know the burden, maybe the discouragement, the stress the anxiety that hearts have here this morning. You are the the meter, you are the supplier of every need. You will supply our need according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to believe your word. Help us to believe these promises. That you are lavish in your blessing. That you will do us no harm that though you bring us through a valley of shadow, of death, though you have us seated before our enemies, you will take care of us. You are our perfect shepherd. You are all that we need. I pray, Father, that you would bring every heart here to the place where you are all that we want. Father, strengthen our faith today. Help us, Lord, to learn the lesson that you taught to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Help us to learn the secret of contentment in you. Give to us your spirit according to your grace in Christ. I, I pray that you would help us as we listen. Help me, Father, as I preach. I pray that I would say nothing that would displease you, nothing that would mislead anyone here. May my words be true to what you have said. Speak through me. And bring us close to you. Change us. Make us like Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. This morning, as I promised you last week, I want to begin a series on contentment. And I have a lot to say today about discontent as we get started. It's so very easy to to peg discontentment when you see it. And, and to think quite accurately and biblically how terrible and wrong and how absurd discontent is. I'll give you an example. I think all the parents in here will be able to relate to this quite well. So you put your, your child or children in the perfect circumstances. They have been sweating. Through a hot summer in Louisiana. And you take them north. To Canada. And you, you put them in a place that is beautiful and the weather is good. At least 75% of the time. Perfect. For a few weeks. And it's just, it's just the best. I mean, how much I think sometimes as we're sweating through, you know, a hot August or whatever, I'll talk to my mom on the phone and she'll tell me that she's not really taking advantage of the lake. She hasn't been swimming very much. And I'm thinking, mom, do you know how much money I would drop right now to be on that dock and diving into that water? And I just think, man, you're, you're, you're taking that circumstance for granted. So I I take my children up on vacation. And you think it's perfect, it's the perfect circumstances. And yet, inevitably, every single vacation we take, there's squabbling, and there's complaining, and there's the most sour look. Not all the time, by no means, not even most of the time. But now and then, there's just the most sour look that will come across a face, and I'm bored. Or... Just another complaint. And I'm thinking, are you crazy? You know, how, how could you possibly complain? You don't have any chores to do for, for these three weeks. You just, you have not made. You have it perfect. you got family. you got your cousins to play with. What could there possibly be to complain about? And it's so easy for me to see it in that. And it's so easy for me to see how absurd it is. Not just in them. Not just in... People today, but I, you know, look in the Bible, you look at King David's life and God blesses this man. He takes him from this lowly shepherd despised by his brothers to the highest place on earth, basically. The king of his people. He puts him on the throne and he makes with David a covenant that David didn't even ask for. David was going to build God a house, a temple. And God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house and your house and your kingdom and your throne are going to be forever pours out blessing on him. And then David gets bored. He starts taking things for granted. Discontent, the seeds of it begin to grow in his heart. And there's a season in which he should be leading the armies of Israel to war. But he is roaming, pacing his rooftop. Probably he's unsettled. He's bored. He's discontent. He wants more. Wants more? Are you insane, David? You have everything. And his heart is just easy pickings for the devil. And he sees what is forbidden. He sees the beautiful woman on the rooftop nearby. He says, I will have her. And he makes her his own. He commits adultery with her. What choice did she have? We don't know. And then he covers it up with the murder of her husband. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him after a season in which David's heart continues to be unsettled and unhappy. And he tells this parable to David and he says, Okay, David, there's a guy in your kingdom who is loaded with, with everything. He, he's got flocks and herds, uh, cattle on a thousand hills, basically. And, and he has a, a traveling friend come and stay at his house. And this rich man says, I just don't have any, I don't have enough to provide for my friend. And so he sees his poor neighbor down the road who has one little sheep that is like a member of his family. And so he goes to his friend's house and he takes that man's sheep that's a member of his family and he kills that, that lamb so he can give a meal to his friend. And David is he's like, well, are you kidding me? Who, who would do such a thing? And Nathan says, David, you did such a thing. That's you, you're the man. And then David realizes he he doesn't he has not re, he has not pegged himself he has not realized his own sin and the discontent of his heart it's so easy to recognize it in another and see how absurd that it's lunacy but not recognize it in me i want to uh confess to you my my struggles with discontent my primary i've been planning this series i wanted to preach this i wanted to study this this, this book and this topic for a while because of me. Because of my, my madness that's in my heart that I would be discontent with what God has given to me. I mean, it's ridiculous that I would ever be dissatisfied. That I would ever say to God about God or about his gifts, you, this, it's not enough for me. I want more. I, I want to, I want what you have forbidden or I just I want more of the same you've given I I, just, I want extra you it's not enough it's ridiculous so I am my own primary target I feel right now as though I'm on an upward trajectory with coming out of a season of discontent and uh I don't think that I've ever really uh, confided in anyone about this um, too much. But a couple summers ago, coming—I'll just be honest with you—and I don't want you to take me wrong, as I'm kind of—I'm treading a little dangerous ground right here because you could very easily misunderstand me or think that I'm not loyal to you or something. But coming back to Louisiana is very difficult for me to leave my family behind, and I very can e- easily turn it into a pity party. You know, I, I, I see my, my grandmother one day a year, and I, I love her to death. I see her just the one day of a year because she lives quite a ways from my parents where we stay. And so, you know, I the next day after seeing her, we cross the border, we start coming back down, and it's August, so that's, that's honestly, I'm a wuss when it comes to the heat. I am. Call me a wuss. It's fine. It's true. I can't take it. It's It, it drives me nuts. And uh, I complain too much during the summer. And uh, but it's it's hard leaving my family behind, leaving home behind, and I, I'm homesick. And George has been here since the 1960s, and he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so he had been here 50 plus years, and and he or, or thereabouts, and he still he feels that that homesickness, and it it's hard. So and I think I think okay, I'm I spend so much of my time. With other people's grandmothers. And I've missed the last decade of my own grandmother's life. Okay. It's not hard for me to think like that. And then I, I just easily turn it into a pity party. And I think selfishly. And it's, it's, it's stupid, honestly. So last year, two years ago, I had this, this struggle. Well, I guess every year I do in parts, but two years ago was more serious and it lasted longer. And then last summer was really hard for me. I stayed in this, this funk for about three months. Just um, so so homesick and nostalgic and, and longing for things. This is how it got. I don't know if you'll be able to relate to this at all. Maybe there's some of you who, who can. But I will just see, like on, on television, just a glimpse in, in a, a TV show of something beautiful. Like a countryside, just a, a quiet scene, just something beautiful that will make me think about home and just I'll feel like my heart is tearing in two. And so this, this went on for a few months at the, when I came back and, uh, I, it's just, I can't take that. I, I, I can't think like that. I can't stay like that. And so the, this discontent is, um, Really a great struggle for me. Now, this year, I can't necessarily explain it, but I'm not feeling like I have in the last couple years. And I'm very thankful for that. But I want it to be, I want to have a Christian contentment in my heart. Not just any contentment. Not just, when I talk about contentment, we're not talking about, okay, having a good personality, you know, someone who's unflappable, they can go through any situation. That's not Christian contentment. We're not talking about uh, someone who's just even keeled in their temperament. We're not talking about being in a good mood. That's not Christian contentment. Let's define it in a moment, but let's talk about the evil of discontent. We've already been hinting at it. The evil is, to it says, God, you are not enough. What you provide for me is not good enough for me. You owe me. I deserve better than this. All the promises of your blessing, it's not enough for me. And you are not worthy of my trust in every situation, whether I'm abounding or in need. So we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, but that's the situation with Adam and Eve in the garden when the tempter comes and he says... You know, eat this. When you eat this, you won't die, but you will be like God. And so they are in that, the discontent that he feeds into their hearts. They they don't believe that God is enough for them. They don't believe that God is worthy of their trust. And it leads to treason. Cosmic treason that turns the world upside down. That leads to the, the death and the ruin of humanity. All because of this discontent in their heart. So discontent walks hand in hand with envy. It breeds immediately covetousness and idolatry to value God's gifts over God the giver and to say that he's not worthy of trust and that he's not enough. It's an evil, evil thing. And so we must wage war against it. We must fight, combat, discontent in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you just a few definitions of Christian contentment. I'll mention a couple that I've been reading and then my own summary and conclusion. Jeremiah Burroughs, 17th century Puritan, wrote uh, the classic book on contentment called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he defined it this way. He said, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition more modern writer. In fact, there's a really good little book on the back table called The Greener Grass Conspiracy. Someone should check it out. It's it's great. Uh, Here's that author's definition. Contentment is a disposition of the heart that freely and joyfully submits to God's will, whatever that will may be. And I've reduced it even further. Hopefully it's sufficient. Contentment. What is it? What is Christian contentment? It is a sweet spirit of heart submission to every arrangement of God's will. Contentment is a sweet spirit of heart submission to every arrangement of God's will. We cannot bring glory to God without a contented heart. Now, Jeremiah Burroughs called it a rare jewel. Why is it so rare? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 said that he learned it. He, he learned and he called it a secret, which means that it was a mystery. Why is it a rare thing? What is so mysterious about it? We are inclined, naturally, having received a corrupt nature from our father Adam, we are just simply inclined to discontent. We are always hungering and we are always thirsting for more. I mean, it, what industry is not built on the backs of uh, the back of discontent? In the news recently, we have this website, Ashley Madison. Is that right? Anybody? Okay, not all right. That um, had nearly forty million members. And what is it all about? Finding someone with whom to have an adulterous affair. That's what it's all about. Nearly 40 million members. That's insane. That is what discontent breeds. That's a whole industry built on discontent. Planned Parenthood. Abortion. How did Planned Parenthood find 300,000 plus women to abort their babies? Or why would so many come to Planned Parenthood to abort their babies? Discontent. Because a doctor says, if you have this child, this child is going to be disformed. This child is going to be disabled. But here is an option. Think of This as something that would help this child. Because what unhappiness would it suffer? What quality of life would it not have? We're always talking about raising the standard of living. Why? Because of our discontent. And then not only that, you know, thinking about what happiness the parent would not have. Or what suffering the child would go through. And and legitimate suffering, I know. But even, you know, the, the husband or the boyfriend... You know, putting the pressure on the woman saying, I don't want a baby right now. Or the woman saying, I can't go in where I want to in my career if I have this child. Or, we can't afford it. And so nearly, or more than a million babies a year, Planned Parenthood accomplishing 300,000 plus of these abortions the killing of a baby's life and the dismembering of its parts. You've seen the videos, by the way. You know the horror of this. You know the evil. In the latest, cutting open the unborn baby's face, from the chin upward to get to the brain. What are we doing? It's all about discontent. It's where it all comes from. It's where it's rooted. So contentment, again, is a, a sweet spirit of heart submission. Not just will submission, not just a choice but a heart submission to God for every arrangement of his will. And Paul said he learned it. It's, it's, it's rare, again, because we're not inclined to contentment, and it's rare because our we we believe that we must find it in something that's tangible, something that we can see, something that we can touch, taste, handle. That's where we can find contentment. And we believe that we have the strength to do it. On both of those counts, Paul says we are wrong. We're dead wrong. We do not have the strength within ourselves to have a contented heart. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's how I have learned to face plenty and hunger and abundance and need. It's through Christ. He is my resource. He is my supply. Without him, I will not have a contented heart. But contentment also is not to be found in this world, which again goes against every instinct that we have, naturally speaking. Contentment, where is it found? Where did Paul find it? Here, this is the crucial thing that we're going to be focusing on for our time remaining. Where is it found? It's found in the person of Jesus. There are so many substitutes to contentment. Please do not be deceived. Because you can feel like you're on cloud nine by the circumstances that you're in. You can be feeling really good because of the greener grass that you finally arrived at. Contentment is found in Christ. The world is holding out so many substitutes, so many things that can make you happy. And there are, I believe that there are pretty happy people out there who do not follow after Jesus, but they're being deceived by the pleasures of this world, which last for a season, which are legitimate pleasures in this, in the sense that it's real pleasure and real happiness that they have, but it's temporary. And it will not last. True contentment that lasts, that endures, is found only in Jesus. So if you are your own ultimate concern, you will not have Christian contentment. If your needs and your desires or the things of this world are your focus, you will not have Christian contentment. And you will not please the Lord. Your life must be focused. You must have a Christ-absorbed heart. You must live the Christ-absorbed life. So let's back up. We're actually going to, with our time remaining, work our way backward, backward through this letter to see how what Paul found that had him content. In chapter three, he talks to the Philippians about his past spiritual endeavors, his past pursuits, and how he had gone about building up this impeccable spiritual resume. So many accomplishments that, that he was able to do and, and outdo, did his peers in. Um, he talks about this confidence in the flesh. He says to beware of the people who put confidence in the flesh. Who would lead you astray. Look at verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he, and he thought that he had it made. And others around him, his peers, thought that Paul had it, had it made. That he had aspired to this goal and he had reached it. And why shouldn't Paul be happy? He had gained everything that he had set his heart on. He had gained it all. And then on the road to Damascus, he encountered the man that he thought had rotted in the grave. He encountered Christ. And he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Was that painful, Paul? (laughs) Not really. I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Where had, where did Paul find the thing of surpassing value? It was in Jesus. He thought that he had it made, He thought that he had all there was to be gained until he realized that Jesus is alive. That Jesus, who died on the cross, is alive. That he is the Christ and that he is the Lord. And Paul realized when he met Jesus that, in fact, he had nothing. He had gained nothing in his life. It was all worthless. It was rubbish. Whatever... Things you can accumulate outside of Christ. If you do not enjoy them in Christ, if they are not consecrated to Christ outside of Christ, they're worthless. Nothing in this world outside of Christ is gain. Paul said, there on the road to Damascus, I counted it, it, I counted it as loss. And he says, for the present, I'm still counting all things as loss, as rubbish, so that I may know Christ. It was the Christ-focused, Christ-absorbed life. It's obvious, isn't it, that Paul's obsessed with Jesus. Are you? Do you think that it would be weird to be obsessed with Jesus Would you be afraid of what others would think of you if you were overly obsessed with Jesus? I mean, we can be all about a person. We can be all about the latest toy that we have. Phone, whatever. There's a whole industry built on discontent. It's madness, isn't it? And people don't think we're very strange. I mean, you can be head over heels for someone. That's not crazy. That's not weird. But if you are obsessed with Jesus, even people in the church will think that you're odd. You might even stick out like a sore thumb if your life is absorbed with Christ. What is it about Jesus? Well, one thing that he mentions here is that Through Jesus, he has righteousness finally before God. There's that, but there's more. And I want to back up now further to chapter 2. We're going to look at a very familiar passage. But he says that knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth. Jesus is the most valuable being that there is. There is no value in this world that can rival the value, the beauty, the glory, the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is it. And I think in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we see how Jesus is so beautiful and glorious and valuable. How wonderful He is. And why we should make Him our hearts, minds, souls, strength, pursuit. Why our lives should be Christ-absorbed. Paul instructed them, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that's crazy. Jesus had, I'm obviously hugely understating this, Jesus obviously had in his fellowship with God A very good thing. In his equality with God. In his place with God. In receiving the worship of heaven. In having the oversight of earth. Jesus had a very good thing. What do we have? What do we receive that we want to hang on to? That we do not want to give up for anything. Okay, you you can have this of mine. And you can have that of mine. But this, this is mine. You can't touch this. Look at again what it says. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't think that he had to cling to it and hold on for all it was worth. It says, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And if that wasn't enough... It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And if that wasn't enough, we're talking about even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is this person who is of all-surpassing worth? It's this one that Paul describes in chapter 2, 5-11. to 11. Jesus is all in all. He is the eternal sovereign. Glorious Lord, the eternal God, unchanging. He created this world by the word of His power. All things were created through Him, and nothing was made outside of Him that was made. All things were made by Him, and all things were made for Him. He is the glorious God, King of kings, Lord of lords. He has no rival. He is the author of life. He is all in all, but made himself nothing. All in all, made himself nothing. He came to be a servant, the highest God, the most humble of men, and dying in his obedience to God, even death on a cross. That's Jesus. There is so much here, and we are so used to hearing this message of the gospel that we are very prone to being desensitized to Jesus and what He has done. Even to the the, the realization that Jesus is real. I mean, He's not just the story that we talk about. He's not a, a myth. He's not... A past figure, he is real, he is alive, he is reigning upon the throne of heaven. He actually came and made himself nothing for the sake of your soul. And how many hearts in this room, and I'm talking even to my own, can sit here completely unmoved at what the all in all has done that I might live. I, a rebel against his will. I who have committed treason against him. He made himself nothing and was slaughtered that I might live with him forever. God's inexpressible gift. God's matchless, immeasurable love. That's who Jesus is. And we can. We do. I know we do. We sit here, unmoved. Our hearts calloused. thinking about other things, wanting other things, our hearts discontent, trying to entertain ourselves while the sermon goes on with other thoughts. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. We're pathetic. Jesus is of all surpassing worth. He is where contentment is found because He has made us His own. We belong to Him and we have Him. We are his and he is ours. We have Christ. And that is the one thing in this life that does not change. Can you imagine what life is going to, what is going to unfold if Jesus tarries in the next 50 years? Think about the last 50 years. Back to the 1960s. Think about what has happened. Presidents, a president, that's a little more than 50 years ago, assassinated an attempt on another president's life. You know, shocking news. The tsunamis that destroy the lives of 200,000 people. Earthquakes that take the lives of 200,000 people. And that's just in the last 10 10 years. Just think about what's gonna happen in the next 50 years. Think about how your children's circumstances are gonna change. Think about what they will have to face. Think about the stresses and the needs that will cross their lives. Think about what is happening in this country and where we're going to be. Sir, Everything's going to change. It's going to be up and down, up and down. There's going to be good, there's going to be bad, and there's going to be really, really bad. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. There's no doubt about it that it's going to happen. But Jesus Christ remains. He remains forever, and He does not change And it does not change that we are his and he is ours. That will not change. How can you be content in every situation, in all the flux? It's Christ. Don't pursue the world. Don't compromise. Don't believe the devil's lies. Don't latch on to what the world is promising. It will all come up short. It will come up empty. I promise you. How many people that you know and that I know and we know together living in unrepentant sin? I keep hearing stories. I keep hearing about people that I think, I thought that I I knew that person. I thought that, you know, their faith would, you know, they wouldn't go that way. They wouldn't do that. But yet, and, and, they, and they, they sin. And it's not, we all sin. We all sin. The difference is, listen, I sinned and I know that it's sin. I have a struggle with discontent and I know it stinks. I know it's madness. I know it's rot in my soul. And I don't want it because I want to follow Christ and I want to bring glory to my God. So I will fight. I'm going to turn my back on the world and Satan's lies and I'm coming after Christ. And I'm going to turn and I'm going to keep on turning back to Jesus because I belong to Him and He belongs to me. I am His and He is mine. And yet, there's so many who profess Jesus all around us that are sinning, engaging in all kinds of sin and saying, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm not, I'm not going to repent. And it's, it's lunacy. It's madness. They're discontent. And they're finding their treasure in this world. But there's only one place. Contentment is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Because Jesus never changes. My union with Christ does not change. So I want my life to be Christ-absorbed. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. And again, very familiar verses. Paul is in prison. Roman imprisonment. Suffering. And this letter, we're going to talk about this letter more, is all about joy. It's all about rejoicing. Paul's circumstances... They're bad. I mean, captivity, it's not any fun. Just a little bit of, you know, nutrition every day just to scrape by. It's There's not, you know, that's not happiness. That's not the good life. And so he's actually in this predicament now. Kind of, he calls it, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. It's kind of a, a rock and a hard place. And, and what it is is, Am I going to honor Jesus by my life or by my death? Which one do I want? Which one will I have? I would love to die. Because to be with Christ is better by far. Dying is gain. To lose everything, lose my life, that's gain. But he realizes it's more necessary for your progress and joy in the faith for me to stay. And so all this goes through his mind and he comes to a conclusion. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. But look down at verse 21, where he says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So his rock and a hard place. You know when we're between a rock and a hard place, life. I want to use a word, but I I shouldn't because I'm in the pulpit. Life stinks when you're between the rock and the hard place, right? You're like this 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 rots. You complain. I mean, and you get stressed. You get anxious. And you're like, which way? I don't know. This I need I need some greener grass. I need to turn the corner in my life and so on. Paul's in prison and his rock and his hard place is to live as Christ to die as gain. That's it. That's his hard decision. And he loves it. He's full of joy. Because he's either going to live being spent for Christ or he's going to lose everything and be with Christ. And he is full of joy. And he has learned contentment in every situation. Because he has Jesus. He lives and it's Jesus. He dies and he is right there with Jesus. This is where we find contentment for our souls. Discontent is an evil thing in the heart of the people of God. Especially in the people of God. Because we have the spirit reigning in our hearts. Contentment. It's possible. It's rare, but it's possible. Through Christ, who gives you strength, you and I can be content. If our lives are Christ-absorbed, if we can say, to live is Christ, to die is Christ, then we can be content. So the next few weeks, we'll unpack this a little bit more and explore this. And I don't know exactly how long this series may last. It may just be two more weeks. We'll see. But pray for me as I follow the Lord's leading in that. And pray for, pray for us. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Because every single person here has this struggle with discontent. And who wants to live like this? And who does not want to bring greater glory to God? So let's pray for one another. Father, we thank you that we have Jesus. What more is there? You have given us your inexpressible gift. You have given to us the gift that is of all-surpassing worth. Nothing compares with Jesus. And so having Christ, I pray, Father, that we would be Christ-absorbed, relentlessly Christ-focused, driven by His purposes, desiring in all things His praise. I pray that church, religion, relationship with Jesus, I pray that this would never be what we do on the side. Even to say it's the highlight of a week, and then the rest of our lives are spent pursuing other things, I pray that our lives would be an all-out pursuit of Christ because he has already made us his own. Father, help us to learn the secret of contentment. Help us to believe in the all-surpassing worth of Jesus. Accomplish this in us by your strength because we are not able on our own. To you be all honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.